Ooh, hello, and welcome to episode 34 of Curiosityness with me, the host, Travis DeRose. And I think you're going to like this episode a lot. It's pretty freaking fun and interesting. I have on Jeff Schumacher. Hope I pronounced that last name right. Sorry, Jeff. Uh, but he is the author of Sun, Sin, and Suburbia, The History of Modern Las Vegas. So essentially, he just kind of walks us through the whole history of Las Vegas and how it began. And I've always been curious about how this weird city in the middle of the desert began that attracts so many people and has so much money and has the biggest entertainment acts and allows gambling and all this stuff. Like, how did that even begin and start? And why do we go there? Um, so that's what we talk about in this episode. Jeff knows so much about Las Vegas. It's, it's crazy. He works at the mob museum, which I'm dying to go to soon. Uh, but yeah, it's just a really fun episode. I think you'll really enjoy this history lesson. It's, it's incredible. And, uh, something I think we will have all been curious about driving into Vegas and something that you're going to learn about right now. And we are going, how you doing, Jeff? I'm doing well. Thanks. Cool. Well, thanks for being on the show. You are, where are you at right now? I'm in my office, uh, at, uh, near the mob museum in Las Vegas. In Las Vegas, cool. And is that where you grew up? I spent I've spent a lot of my life in Las Vegas, although I'm originally from Wisconsin. Oh, okay. Yeah, but we moved out here when I was 11 years old, so I've been I'm more of a Westerner, I think. Yeah, yeah, 11 is pretty young to move out. Wow, mm-hmm. sweet. Right by the Mom Museum too. Yeah, I I was in Vegas, what like a week, two weeks ago now. We were trying to mm-hmm. check out the the mom museum, but didn't have time. But it looks pretty sweet. It looks very fun. It's a great place to work. You know, we, we're in a historic building, and uh, we you know just have a great topic. And uh, you know, every day you know we're we're delving into interesting stories. So it's it's a great place to work. Yeah. So what's the uh, what's the building that you're in? So the the building is the first federal courthouse and post office in Las Vegas. It was uh, built in 1933, which is pretty old by Las Vegas standards, kind of a young city. And uh, so, you know, it's a classic modern, as they say, design, you know, it looks like a uh, building you would see in Washington, D.C. or what have you. And um which is also unusual for Las Vegas. We have very few of those. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it, after in the 21st century, it was transformed into a museum. But for many years, it was the federal courthouse here. Wow, cool. So you're yeah. kind of, I mean, would you call yourself a Las Vegas historian? Would that be a correct term for you? Yeah, I think that's a, I think that's fine. Yeah. I, I, I really started uh, um, as a Las Vegas historian before I became a mob historian. So uh, it's both, really. Mm-hmm. But there, that is that story just kind of intermingled together? Yeah, definitely there are a lot of connections uh, between uh, mob history and Las Vegas history. Uh, Las Vegas, and could, it could be argued and, and often is argued that, you know, the mob built Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's, you know, there's a little bit more, it's a little more complicated than that. But generally speaking, when you look at the, the growth of the Las Vegas Strip, mm-hmm. all the casinos along there or the ones that used to be there, uh, definitely the mob played a huge role in that. So yeah, there's a lot of intersection. Right. Yeah. That's the thing is like, I think, well, for myself at least, and I'm sure a lot of people think this is, you know, 
people you go out to visit Vegas and you're like, what the heck? Like, how did this place come to be? You know, just this huge metropolis destination in the middle of the desert. It's yeah. just like crazy. So that's what I'm curious about. And we're just hoping to learn on this, you know, show is how Las Vegas got started and, and all this stuff. And and you're the author of Sun, Sin and Suburbia, the history of modern Las Vegas. So you have some knowledge on the subject for sure. I spent a little time thinking about this and, and researching it. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So, I mean, let's just dig into it. Like where, how did this all start? Where should the, where does the story begin? Yeah. So I, I would say that the best way to describe the origins of Las Vegas is really in a couple of parts. So it started with the uh, settlement here in 1855 of a, a group of Mormons. So remember the Mormons were had moved to Utah territory right. mm-hmm. uh, in the late 1840s. And then they started looking at expanding around the West. And one of the places they wanted to settle was in this Las Vegas Valley. There was re- there were really no Anglo people here at the time. It was, there were Paiute Indians, and that's about it. And one, of, but it was a there was a trail running through Las Vegas that connected Utah and California. And so one of the things that happened in Las Vegas is there were a lot of like bandits hanging out here. So if you had a wagon train coming between Utah and San and San Bernardino, California, um, Las Vegas is a place where you might have been a little concerned about your safety. Right. or the well-being of your cargo. Mm-hmm. So the Mormons decided to set up in Las Vegas. They sent a group of people here, and they, um, you know, settled. They built a fort. Uh, they started planting crops. Uh, families, you know, each family was had allotted a certain amount of acreage, and they built a little community here. They wanted to proselytize to the Paiutes because, um, you know, that was part of their mission. Um, they... Uh, but the problem was Las Vegas was very inhospitable to this Mormon settlement. First of all, the, the Paiutes at the time didn't have the same kind of general mores as, you know, as uh, uh, the Mormons did. And so they, when, they, when you would grow something in the, on your little plot of land, once it became ripe, you know, it was free picking. So that was sort of the mindset. So oh, Paiutes are like, hey, we'll, we'll take some of these uh, radishes or whatever they are. Um, and Mormons didn't care for that. Right. Um, the Paiutes were also not very receptive to the becoming Mormons. They weren't real uh, excited about that idea. Meanwhile, there was a lot of dissension in the ranks of this group because, uh, you know, frankly, it was hot as hell here. And it was difficult to live in Las Vegas. And, and there was a leadership problem. You know, people were rebelling against the leadership. Weren't They weren't agreeing with the direction where things were going. Uh, there was a mining operation. They set up a mining operation out in the hills outside Las Vegas, and they were mining lead. And this seemed like a good idea because they would use the lead for bullets and other things that they could use mm-hmm. back in Utah. The problem was the lead that they were mining wasn't wasn't good. It was, I guess, considered soft. It, it wouldn't harden into the way you think of uh, a bullet certainly being. So it was kind of a big waste of time. So long story short, the Mormons were only here for about three years and pulled up stakes and they went back to Utah. There are a bunch of factors that went into that. uh, But the the bottom line is they were the first settlers here, but they were only here very briefly. Okay. So 
after that, between 1858 and 1900, really, what you see is um, a relative handful of ranches in Las Vegas, mostly just serving people coming through, you know, and it was very small. Uh, there was there was some agriculture. There was some, you know there was a lot of um, uh, different things going on, raising herds of cattle and so forth. But it was really sleepy. There was not not a lot of activity here. Mm-hmm. Everything changed in uh, 1902 when a woman named Helen Stewart, who had a big ranch here, sold her land to uh, a railroad baron. And the railroad baron, William Andrews Clark, he decided he was building a railroad between Salt Lake City and Southern California. Okay. And this would be really useful for a variety of reasons. And uh, he needed a halfway point, a division point, uh, where he could uh, water his trains, where he could repair the trains, he could have his uh, railroad workers stay. So he bought the land in Las Vegas, He and he created a town site. And he auctioned off lots in the town site. And, uh, and in 1905, there was this big auction in May of 1905. It was like 110 degrees. It was an unusually hot May day. People came out anyway. They came out on the train from L.A., from Salt Lake, and they bid on these lots. And, uh, you know, and it turned out William Andrews Clark, the, the railroad baron and mining baron also, uh, made a killing because he, he made much more money on these lots than he had paid for them collectively. So uh, Las Vegas, really, its origins began with a land auction, which isn't surprising. <laughs> People started moving here, settling, but owning, starting businesses. They started a bank. They started a store. Of course, they started saloons and, and bar uh, saloons and, and gambling uh, parlors and brothels and all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And Las Vegas became kind of a way station uh, on the railroad, but also... There were mining. There was a lot of mining going on up in central Nevada. There was Tonopah. There was Goldfield. There was Rhyolite. All these mining strikes, gold and silver. And then what they, the the whole point of the railroad was, you would take this gold or silver ore, you would get it to Las Vegas, and then you get it on the train and take it to L.A. so that you can, you know, have it, uh, how you can sell it. Right. And, um, uh, so you'd have the miners after months out in the desert, you know, just, you know, barely you know, keeping their sanity as they dig through these mines, they would come to Las Vegas for a few days and really blow off steam. And they would do that in obviously a variety of ways, drinking too much, you know, going to the brothel, gambling, all of these things. Mm-hmm. And Las Vegas soon kind of became that kind of a place. It was a place with, you know, nowadays we call it a party town. I think back then, you know, you might have another name for it, but it was a place where you know, people uh, would ha- would uh, have fun and, and take a break from their from their cares. Right. So that's very early. Wow, interesting. So, what was the initial like? How did this um, the railroad uh, tycoon kind of bring in? Like, how did he convince people to come and bid on this land? Well, that's a good point. So, uh, you know, why would somebody want to do this? Well, the idea you could get in on the ground floor of a new community. Mm-hmm. I think that was attractive to some people. Um, you know, for even though he made a lot of money on the land auction, it, the, these lots were not that expensive. It was probably much cheaper than what you could pay, what you would pay in LA. Right. So you want to get in on the ground floor of a new opportunity. You buy this land, you open, uh, put, you know, you put in your, 
your your store or your bank or your uh, saloon, and you know you you've got uh, a foundation for something you can build on. And so there were a lot of people who took advantage of that. And there are some of those families that are still with us today in oh, the community. Wow. That's kind of amazing, right? Wow. Uh, the Cashman family, the Von Tobel family, uh, the Beckley family, all these families, they were there at the beginning. <laughs> and they're still with us. And the descendants are still with us today. So, you know, and they became very wealthy, many of them. And, uh, you know, because they were here, they were in on the beginning, they were in on opportunities that came up later and took advantage of those and um, kind of like, you know, it was, it was a smart move on their part. Yeah. But it was extremely rough in the beginning. I mean, keep in mind, there was no, no electricity. Uh, you know, the water was, you know, there was no central water system or sewer system, uh, air condi- no air conditioning in those early years. I mean, it had to have been tough. And uh, it didn't really turn into anything resembling a town that you would recognize I would say until the twenties, and and even after that, you didn't really have air conditioning in homes until the late thirties or the early forties. Right. So people found innovative ways to keep cool, but uh, you know it, it was it was different than it is today, where every building and every car right is climate controlled. So you, in the middle of summer here, you're exposed to the heat very little, as little as possible. Mm-hmm. It was that wasn't how it was back then. Yeah, that doesn't seem like a very attractive place to go. Like here, uh, I live in L.A., uh, Long Beach, right by the beach. And, you know, uh-huh. the weather varies from mid-60s to mid-70s. That's uh-huh. it, like year-round, you know. So anytime I go to Vegas, it's either like blazing hot or, or pretty cold for me, you know. Yeah, you, you know, you got to find those sweet spots here, you know, in the spring and the fall when it is really perfect. But uh yeah, people don't realize too many times that it gets very cold. You can it can get quite cold here in the winter, mm-hmm. and so like we have New Year's here, right? Yeah. And we have massive numbers of people coming here from Southern California for our New Year's celebrations. Many of whom forgot to bring a coat. Right. You know, it's like <laughs> really, uh, it's going to be thirty-seven tonight at midnight. So yeah. maybe the thought of that, but. Uh, <laughs> You know, it's still much more mild than back east, of course, or, you know, in the Midwest or what have you. Mm-hmm. Okay, interesting. So that's, it kind of almost, it started to get that, like, sort of Vegas reputation, like, really early from the beginning. Because that, like, that wasn't, for the time, that wasn't very common to have a town like that. Was it kind of a destination to go, you know, like it is today? I, th- I think maybe not a destination at that point, um, okay. but I will say that there was a huge turning point. So in 1931, three important things happened that really turned Las Vegas into what it is today. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first one was that construction of Hoover Dam started. You know, Hoover, this was the Depression in the 1930s, mm-hmm. and people were looking for work. It was a desperate time in a lot of parts of the country. In Las Vegas, though, we had the beginnings of the construction of Hoover Dam. And Hoover Dam offered good pay. It hired a lot of people, thousands of guys that came from all over the country. They descended on Las Vegas and uh, started working on the dam. This was a huge economic boost to this area. And although the federal government didn't want its employees to live in Las Vegas because of all the, you know, the vice activity here, Mm -hmm. uh, it's a little town outside of Las Vegas called Boulder City. 
and Boulder City, which still exists today, um, um, became the sort of company town for Hoover Dam, oh. or was known then as Boulder Dam. Well, so, uh, but, but the federal government ran that town, and that meant no liquor sold anywhere. It meant no gambling. It meant no, it even had a curfew. You had to be in bed like nine or ten o'clock, or else you're in trouble. So, what did these folks do who were working these twelve-hour shifts on the, at the dam in perilous conditions and hot and sweaty, dangerous? Of course, they would come to Las Vegas. Yeah, and Las Vegas would answer all of their desires, right? So that's that's what happened, and Las Vegas took advantage of that. The second thing that happened in 1931 was uh, the passage of two laws by the state government, uh, the state legislature. The first one legalized gambling, legalized gambling of all kinds in Las Vegas. Um, and the second thing that happened, the second law that was passed, uh, made it much easier uh, to uh, get a divorce. You only needed to pay, spend six weeks to get a divorce. You had to live in, the, live in the community for six weeks and you could get a divorce. At that time, in other states, it was quite difficult to get a divorce. You know, there were all these hoops you had to jump through and the, the woman in particular had to make all these arguments as to why to justify the divorce and everything. Well, Nevada made that much easier. And so what you saw is this, the emergence of these casinos on Fremont Street, which is downtown Las Vegas. Mm -hmm. And you saw uh, the rise of that as a destination. Like if you want to gamble legally where you're not going to get busted, go to Las Vegas, go to Reno. Um, if you want to get a divorce and you don't want to have any hassle, you know, go to Las Vegas, spend six weeks there, and then you get your divorce and everybody's. <laughs> so in the 1930s, Las Vegas had an economic boom from those three things, from Hoover Dam construction, legalization of gambling, and the six-week divorce. Wow. Crazy. Yeah. So uh, so gambling was legalized for the state of Nevada, correct? Mm -hmm. But it still wasn't uh, – like was it legal in other states at the time? Or no. No other states. Okay. No other states. I mean, now we'll say that there were certain states that would say, well, you can – you can have a bingo game, or there were a few states where you might be able to have a couple of slot machines and a VFW lodge or something like that. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, what they call wide open gambling was not permitted. Wow. Now, you did have illegal places around the country, mm -hmm. and that's where we got most of our people who ran our casinos, right? <laughs> we'll get into that. But, um, you know, you, you can legalize gambling in Nevada and say, oh, you can have all the casinos you want, but you need somebody that knows what they're doing to run them. Right. Who knows how to, if something's been illegal forever, who knows how to run those except the people who've been doing it illegally somewhere else. Yes. So Las Vegas became an, uh, a destination for uh, men typically who had great experience with gambling. And so they came here to, to go legit. I see. So what yeah. was the, do you know what was the impotence that kind of caused that law to be passed to allow gambling and, and make divorce easy? I think it was really, uh, well, I know what it was. It was um, Nevada at that time had, up to that time, Nevada had depended largely on mining for its economy. Mm -hmm. You remember going back, Virginia City, you know, Mark Twain. Uh, the, this was the huge Comstock load strike of, 18, of 1859. And then you had other mining strikes around the state. 
mining was the thing in Las Vegas and in the entire state. Um, it was the economy of the state, but it was a boom and bust kind of economy. So a one place would sprout up for six months or a year, and then the gold would run out, and it was time to go somewhere else. Right. So what was happening in the 1920s is, excuse me, Nevada was running out of mines. Basically, the mines were playing out, as they say, and, and Nevada needed some new economic ideas. So two of them that they came up with at that time were gambling and uh, easy divorce. Oh, okay. And also easy marriage, I should note, as well. They made marriage quite e easy as well. Huh. Um, but uh, those were it was an economic decision. Wow. That is cool. Makes sense. Uh, I mean, it just makes total sense for them to, to figure out something like that to, to boost up, get some revenue going. Yeah. Cool. So that, that you know... That makes total sense why, you know, Vegas started to develop. Uh, so that was through the 30s. So they started, it, it initially began on Fremont Street. That was initially where yeah. all the casinos and everything started to be built. Yes, part of the original, what was part of the original, and still is, part of the original town site. So remember they had the land auction in 1905 and all those lots were sold. That's where Fremont Street, Fremont Street runs right through that old town site and Years at that time, you know, going back, there were even houses on that street. There were little businesses and so forth. Mm -hmm. But what you saw developing in the 1930s was a casino district, really. And Fremont Street became the place where that, uh, where those casinos uh, developed. And um, it became known, you know, by a variety of names, of Glitter Gulch, you might have heard of that phrase. Um, you know, this was the, the epicenter of Las Vegas tourism at that time. Wow, okay. So was it, um, do you think at this point it had sort of become a travel destination like it is now where people go for, you know, to get married and stuff like that? Like you said, easier marriage? Yeah, for sure. Um, two things I think led to that. So the gambling, for one thing, people were interested in gambling. Uh -huh. It's sort of a human trait that yeah. we like to gamble for some reason. Yes. Um, the second thing was people would come to this area to take a look at Hoover Dam. Hoover Dam became a tourist attraction. Even when it was under construction, people wanted to come and take a look at this great engineering wonder. Mm -hmm. So you started seeing people make a vacation out of it. They would drive up from Southern California, typically, although not uh, from elsewhere as well, but typically from Southern California. Mm -hmm. They would get a look at Hoover Dam, and then they would need some place to stay and some place to have a good time. And so they'd end up in Las Vegas, and uh, you know they'd gamble, and they'd go to the shows or whatever was going on. And uh, Las Vegas started adding more and more features so they could accommodate these uh, tourists. Okay. Makes sense. So were the, um, these early casinos, were they similar to what they are now? Do they look similar and, and have the same types of games? <clears throat> I think when you're looking at the casinos on Fremont Street in the 1930s, they look nothing like what you think of today. Yeah. They were small. Uh, typically, the, the bar would be in the front. And then the, the casino, if you will, would be in the back. Uh, there was not this yet this idea that the casino was the main attraction, that the bar or the restaurant or whatever you had would be the main attraction. And then they're, oh, and if you want to gamble, you know, you might go through that door. I see. And uh, it was still, we still had a lot of, you know, I don't know, morals, you know, or moralists who would say, well, gambling is a sin, it's wrong. So, you know, let's, let's keep that in the back at least. <laughs> 
Um, now that started to change clearly uh, in the 1940s in particular, but uh, early on, these, these places were storefronts essentially, and they were converted into uh, casinos. Right, I see. And so, was there because all these tourists and stuff were coming in? Was there pretty much from the from the 30s and and when these casinos started to be built, were there hotels being built there as well? Yeah. Yes. Uh, so you had a you had two things happening. One is you had uh, hotels being attached to these buildings mm-hmm. on Fremont Street. The other thing you had was a uh, as you saw all over the country, there were these motor motor motels, right? Yeah. So up and down the Fremont Street, and you still have some of these vintage signs today, uh, but these little motels which were sprouted up, and they would have their neon sign, and then they'd have the bungalow type effect. You pull your car right up, and there's the swimming pool right there on the street for some reason, and then you know you would park, and you'd go right directly into your motel room. So you saw a, a big rise in that, uh, that development as well. Mm-hmm. Now everything sort of changed, uh, trend, you know, revolutionized again in the 1940s uh, with the emergence of the World War II, really. And World War II was a huge impetus for Las Vegas um, uh, for two reasons. One, uh, the arrival here, the placement here of an Army Air Base, uh, which is now Nellis, Nellis Air Force Base, but at the time. Uh, it was an Army Air Base because the Air Force didn't exist yet. Mm-hmm. The Air Force didn't come into being until like, 1946. But in 1941, the, the federal government, the military, wanted to start testing, uh, uh, flight testing for uh, bombers and other pilots. And uh, so this wide-open desert was a great place to do that. So they established an Army Air Base here. Thousands and thousands of young men and their families came to the valley. And they're, they're, there's a housing shortage. There's a great need for additional facilities to accommodate these people. And so Las Vegas grew dramatically uh, because of the air base. Mm-hmm. The second thing that happened was there was, a, there, there was a magnesium mine up in central Nevada. And magnesium was a great product to be used in military weaponry. And they needed this magnesium, but to have it up in this very rural part of central Nevada didn't do them much good. So what they would do is they would mine the magnesium up there, and then they would transport it by train or by car, by truck, down to Las Vegas. um, And then there was a magnesium plant, and they needed a lot of water. So they tapped into the Colorado River, brought that water into the plant so that they could process this magnesium and create um, you know, the material that was needed to make torpedoes, to make bombs, to make airplanes, all of the stuff they needed that magnesium was good for. Oh. This, too, attracted thousands and thousands of workers. And, uh, you know, it, it, just a huge number of people in a very short period of time. So the 1940s became this huge growth period for Las Vegas on its own. Um, coinciding with that, because this growth was happening— People around the country are going. Mm, maybe we need to invest some money in Las Vegas. So the first that the first major investment that we're talking about really was the uh, construction of El, the El Rancho Vegas Hotel. Okay. And that happened in 1941, and it was a much closer to what the kind of hotels you see today. 
much smaller, but you know, it had a lot of the hallmarks of what you expect today. It was on what is now the Las Vegas Strip, and it was very kind of low slung. And um, unlike Fremont Street, where every building was like right next to each other, kind of very urban style, mm -hmm. uh, Rancho Vegas had a spread. So you could ride, you could sign up to ride horses. You could, there was a nice swimming pool. Uh, there was, you know, all of these different amenities for you, uh, trees and, you know, open area where you could spend time. And then a casino, of course, yeah. restaurant and so forth. So the Rancho Vegas opens in 1941. And then in 1942, the Last Frontier opens. And these are the, the Last Frontier is even a little bigger than the El Rancho Vegas, has a few more amenities. And now you've got the makings of a new kind of resort destination here, not just these, these little storefronts on Fremont Street. Now you've got these Palm Springs style resorts, you know, where you can kind of spread your, spread your legs a little bit and, and relax and, you know, and do different activities, not just gambling and eating. Mm -hmm. And uh, so this was the emergence of what later became known as the Las Vegas Strip. Okay. Interesting. So they just went to the the area where the strip was just because they wanted more space to build like sort of their all inclusive type of resort thing. It was yes. It was outside the city limits, which was which was desirable because it was the land the, the taxes were were lower uh -huh. and the regulations were more lax. Uh, but it also was on the highway where they at the time was known as the Los Angeles Highway, mm -hmm. and um, the Los Angeles Highway is now the Las Vegas Strip. But at the time that was so you would, before you would even get to Fremont Street, you would see these resorts. And so they were that much closer, just a couple miles, but they were that much closer to L.A. Right. And that was, that was desirable. Huh. Very cool. Right. Um, so it's kind of interesting how it's almost like the, the federal government with their different projects, you know, building Hoover Dam and then uh, having this uh, Navy base or air base. Air Force, what was it? Essentially an Air Force base. Air yeah. Force base there. How they sort of created Vegas because they, you know, they had these huge things drawing a lot of people there. And, of course, these people wanted a place to go and, and hang out and relax and, and everything. So um, when that base came in, was it more – was there sort of a development more to the suburbs of, of Vegas with, with more type of housing and, and typical neighborhoods? Yeah, so so exactly. The the air, you're you're right on track by the way by by noting that the federal government has played a huge role in the rise of Las Vegas and there's a couple more of those that we could talk about as we move forward. Oh. But, you know, Hoover Dam construction and then the Army Air Base and the magnesium plant, that's all federal investment essentially in Las Vegas. Mm -hmm. So, you could argue that the federal government kind of invented Las Vegas. Um, but it goes there's even more afterward. Um, as for development here, yes, uh, the airbase was northeast of Las Vegas, and it was a little ways out, as you might expect. So the housing kind of moved in that direction first. And so you saw somewhat more typical suburban neighborhood development moving east. Mm -hmm. So Vegas moved east first, and then it moved west, and then it moved, well, it moves east, and then north, and then west, and then south. <laughs> That's more inside, but... Um, yeah, so you start seeing regular, you know, you see more homes, you see more sort of cracker box kind of homes, if you will, quickly built, uh, so many of which still stand today. Uh, many a hipster in Las Vegas wants one of those. And, uh, 
It's kind of where they want to live in his Fort 1940s era homes. Uh-huh. Uh, but they're cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, close yeah. to downtown, you know, close to the action. Right. Okay. Interesting. So, so now that that totally does make sense because I was always curious also about how the shift kind of from Fremont Street and kind of the original to to Las Vegas Boulevard and where it is now. So that does make sense. Um, and now, I, I should note that I should note that Fremont Street continued to thrive uh-huh. at this point. Uh, it does run into some challenges later when the strip just becomes so big, you know, it overwhelms Fremont Street. But really in the 40s and 50s and even the 60s, Fremont Street was still holding its own. It was still doing fine as a as a gambling area. Um, but, but the strip was really was starting to, to emerge. I see. Okay. And were they... Was the was Fremont Street essentially the same thing, or did they try to, you know, I mean, during the forties, fifties, and sixties, were they essentially the same, or did they try to match? Uh, they no, they they improved, they made enhancements, they built up instead of out. So you saw the, you know, the every every time they did an improvement, they built another tower, but they didn't have the space for you know to spread out. So you don't have some of those amenities that. You know, you would see on the strip golf courses and you know all these other things. Yeah. So was that a typical? Had that? Do you know if that had been going on in other places like Palm Springs or, or other things where there were these huge resort type of things with all this, or was that kind of a new thing for Vegas? No, I think I think we we copied basically yeah. uh, other places. Uh, I think Palm Springs is a great example, uh, not the only example, but I mean certainly. Uh, the idea of a uh, of a, a resort destination that has some uh, some spread to it, you know, where there's a golf course, there's tennis courts, there's you know big big old swimming pool, there's you know you can ride horses, all these different things. We we had some race tracks here at one time. Hmm. We had a dog track, we had a horse track, you know, cars. We were always looking for that that amenity that we can add, and that started very early on the strip. They just they they were emulating what they were seeing elsewhere. Right, I see. Just making it a complete kind of travel destination with everything. With you gambling, possibly... that was the difference. We added the gambling. Right, I see. So that was that was the the unique selling proposition for Vegas, huh? I think so, and and also entertainment. Um, although other places, you know, entertainers performed in many places. Um, Las, this little old town of Las Vegas, still kind of a small place in the '40s, was attracting the biggest acts in the country, you know, uh, all the, all the great, uh, performers of that era were, were Las Vegas was a stop on their, on their tour. So they were stopping the El Rancho Vegas or the uh, last frontier or the Flamingo, which we'll probably get to. Um, and some of these other resorts to the point where in the 1950s, you know, Las Vegas was making the claim that it was the entertainment capital of the world. <laughs> you know, people would argue with that, but that's, you know, we were doing pretty well in that area. By right. Then. So what was, was it just, were all these uh, performers and entertainers stopping off just because they were able to sell a lot of tickets there? Or was it because they themselves also liked to stop in Vegas? Oh, I think that they could make, they made good money. Yeah. Um, uh, Las Vegas would pay. They probably had to pay a little more mm-hmm. to bring people out to the desert, but uh, they paid well, and um, the fans were very appreciative. Wow, cool! So even yeah. back then, people would still 
you know, even it, it was still kind of in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the desert, and people would still make the drive out. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't really until the, the 50s or really the early 60s that you saw a lot of air travel here, mm-hmm. uh, you know, until jet, jet age, you know, the 60s, when people started coming here en masse uh, by, by plane. I see. Okay, so we're in the 40s, and, and these newer, you know, hotels and resorts are being built along, you know, what would be Las Vegas Boulevard. Did that just continue to grow, and, and more investors and builders came in and just kind of copied that model? Yeah, so so keep in mind, you know, the, the El Rancho Vegas and the Last Frontier were built during World War II. Uh, now, the World War II, much like the Depression, there was a lot of demands on the, on the country. Mm-hmm. I mean, you had all your men going overseas to fight, but you also were building all these weapons and you were taking all these manufacturing plants and transforming them into military plants. Mm-hmm. And, you know, women are going out to work, Rosie the Riveter and all that. Um, and and there, was, there were rules. Like, you can't use these materials to build a hotel. These need to go to the war effort, that kind of thing. I see. So there were real, the fact that the El Rancho Vegas and then the Last Frontier were built, and there was a gap between 1942 when the Last Frontier was built and the next big resort, which didn't open until the end of 1946. Oh. One of the reasons for that was that the lack of materials and the lack of money that could be invested in that. The war was going on. It was the priority. Mm-hmm. Well, re- regardless, in 1945, a man named Billy Wilkerson, uh, who was the founder and publisher of the Hollywood Reporter newspaper, um, he took a, he had taken a liking to Las Vegas. He was a, basically a problem gambler, um, you know, and a gambling addict, and he had a real problem. But because he lost, you know, as gambling addicts tend to do. And, yeah. you know, I made a lot of money. He had some very famous restaurants and nightclubs in, in L.A. during the 30s and early 40s, um, and, as well as owning the newspaper. And uh, But he lost so much money at the tables. Jeez. Well, he, he decided, I, what I want to do is I want to own the house, right? I want to own the casino. Mm-hmm. And that way... Uh, you know, um, uh, um, I, it's a way to make money rather than lose it. So um, he finds a property, a piece of property um, outside of Las Vegas. So uh, even closer to L.A. by a couple of miles. Mm-hmm. And he buys it, 33 acres. He buys that piece of property and he decides to start to build a, a nice resort there. Now, the important thing about Wilkerson is when you look at the at the hotels, casinos on Fremont Street. And when you even at that time look at the El Rancho Vegas and the Last Frontier, they were known and locally as what we called sawdust joints. Mm-hmm. They were very West, you know, cowboy western themed and weren't real fancy. They were they were kind of cheesy, kind of pedestrian, uh, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. What Bill Wilkerson wanted to do was class up the joint. He wanted to have a nice place that would attract the Hollywood crowd that he hobnobbed with every day in L.A. Right. And so it's like, if we're going to do that, we need to build a European-style, Monte Carlo-style, uh, elegant, beautiful place. Mm-hmm. Well, he comes up with the idea for the Flamingo Hotel. And the Flamingo is going to have carpet. It's going to have the, all the employees are going to be dressed nicely. You're going to be expected to dress up when you come. 
The, the restaurant's going to be top notch. The entertainment is going to be, you know, the entertainment venue is going to be beautiful. The mm -hmm. rooms are going to be nice, all that. Right. And uh, he starts building the, the Flamingo. He has a budget of about $1.2 million to, for it, which is a lot of money then that day, 1945, uh -huh. uh, into early 1946. But, again, to go back to it, he's a gambling addict. And so he's having trouble paying his bills to build this Flamingo. So he's going down the street to the El Rancho Vegas or the Last Frontier, and he's gambling, and he's losing thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars that should be going into the Flamingo construction. Jeez. He needs investors. He needs people who will, will help bail him out and allow him to finish the Flamingo. He ends up turning uh, to uh, some guys who uh, back east who uh, had money to spend, uh, but may not have been the most upstanding citizens in the world. And we're talking about Meyer Lansky. We're talking about Benjamin Bugsy Siegel. We're talking about Gus Greenbaum and uh, Frank Costello and all these guys who were the mob kingpins of the East. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a, little, there's a more complexity to it than that because there's a lot of front men involved and you know you don't when you look through the records it's not completely clear that these guys were the the, the real money behind this but they were mm -hmm. so wilkerson was willing to do this he was prepared to go into partnership with the mob because he'd done those kinds of things in la before when he needed to oh. uh, but um he was wary he was a little nervous about it but he figured he could make it work uh -huh. so he an infusion of money and uh, resumes construction on the Flamingo. Well, okay, so you're those investors. You're, imagine you're Meyer Lansky, you're uh, you know, Frank Costello. You want to make sure that your investment is being handled properly. Right. So what do you need to do? You need to send an emissary, an assistant, somebody out to Las Vegas to monitor what's going on. Mm -hmm. well, Meyer Lansky basically uh, uh, taps his old friend, Bugsy Siegel, who's at that time living in L.A., handling the criminal rackets in, in L.A., he says, Bugsy, why don't you go? He wouldn't say that. Ben, go out to Las Vegas and keep an eye on what's going on at the Flamingo. Well, initially, Ben Siegel didn't have much interest in Las Vegas. He was interested in Hollywood. He, at one point, uh, uh, done a screen test. He wanted maybe to move going to the movies. Um, he loved going to the Hollywood parties. He loved women, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. Well, Meyer sends him out to Las Vegas. At first, he's not that thrilled with the whole idea. But over time, Bugsy takes a liking to this project. And he starts thinking, you know what? This thing could be really successful. Uh, I really want to control what's going on here at the Flamingo. So even though he and Billy Wilkerson are supposed to be working side by side to make sure this thing is successful... Bugsy becomes increasingly jealous of Wilkerson's control over what's going on to the point where ultimately Bugsy starts making decisions on the construction site unilaterally huh. and um, is pissing each other off. Well, you know, Wilkerson complains about this, but, you know, we're talking with mobsters here. We know, you know, he knew he had to have known at that very moment that Bugsy had been involved in killing people in the past. Right. <laughs> so a little nervous. Well, uh, uh, ultimately, Bugsy decides he wants to take full control of the Flamingo. 
He wants Wilkerson out. Wilk he threatens Wilkerson, Wilkerson's life to the extent that Wilkerson flees to Paris and lives in Paris during much of the construction of the Flamingo, and, and Siegel ultimately takes over. Wow. So you, when, you, when you think about the movie Bugsy and you think about the, the sort of mainstream story of the Flamingo, you'll hear only about Bugsy Siegel. You don't hear about Billy Wilkerson because this whole mythology has been built around Bugsy Siegel invented Las Vegas. Well, not only did Bugsy Siegel not invent Las Vegas, he didn't even invent the Flamingo. I mean, he, he just muscled his way into it. Yeah. And, then, and then he proceeded to spend a lot more money than Wilkerson wanted to spend. So Wilkerson had a budget of about $1.2 million. Siegel starts spending money like it's water. And he and his girlfriend, Virginia Hill, are involved in all kinds of renovations, all kinds of changes they want to make to the Flamingo to make it even better. Nothing wrong with making it better and nicer, but this is right after the war. There's a lot of there's a shortage of, of materials, and he's insisting on the finest marble of, from Italy. And he he wants this is a bizarre one. He wanted every hotel room to have its own plumbing system, sewer system, so it wouldn't be connected to the other ones. I'm not sure why he cared about that, but he did. <laughs> and I wanted the capability, I guess. Extraordinarily extraordinarily expensive. Yeah. In the end, Bugsy spends about $6 million to open the Flamingo Hotel, to complete the Flamingo. Way over budget. Yeah. And really testing the patience of his own partners, his own mob partners. Well, so Bugsy's under pressure. He needs to start deriving some revenue from this project. See, he opens the Flamingo on December 26, 1946, the day after Christmas, and he's and is not really ready to open, but he knows he need he feels he needs to open and start making money. Mm -hmm. The hotel rooms are not done at this time. They're still not done. So he has a casino and a restaurant and a bar and a lounge. He doesn't have any hotel rooms. So he opens the hotel. I mean, he opens the casino. And then when the night is over, what happens? All his guests get in the car and they go down to the El Rancho Vegas or the Last Frontier or downtown to stay overnight. Right. And he's lost, right? They can go gamble all night in the El Rancho Vegas if they want. They can get up early in the morning and start pulling slot machine handles. So the Flamingo struggles at first. The first couple of months, it's kind of a disaster. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of different reasons why that happened. It wasn't only because of the lack of hotel rooms. But Bugsy's dream was not panning out. He ends up closing the Flamingo the, after the first of the year. Uh, you know, like I think it was... February 1st of 1947, and then so that he can finish the hotel rooms and then reopen. So he does that. He finishes the hotel rooms, then he reopens about a month and a half later, and go, well, lo and behold, the Flamingo starts doing better. Mm -hmm. It's a beautiful resort. People are starting to check in. They're st sticking around. The numbers are looking good, and Bugsy's starting to feel better. Um, he's not necessarily paying off all his debts, He's not necessarily made all his bosses happy yet because it's pretty premature for that. But things are doing, he's doing much better with it. Mm -hmm. Well, in June of 1947, Siegel travels to, to California, to Beverly Hills. Virginia Hill, his girlfriend, has a home she rents there in Beverly Hills. And he sits down, they have dinner. He, Virginia Hill's not there, by the way. She's left town. But he, she, he and his friends uh, 
come back to the house after dinner about 10.30 at night. He's sitting on the couch reading the newspaper, and a gunman, an assassin, shoots Siegel through the window of the home and shoots him, and shoots him right in the eyeball, hits him twice in the face, and then there's seven other shots that were not as close. Oh, my gosh. He's murdered. He's dead. Yeah. That crime has never been solved. The, there are about six credible theories as to who was behind the, the murder. Um, we don't know for sure uh, who it was, but uh, the leading speculation, the leading belief is that, that the mob killed him. In other words, they were tired of Bugsy Siegel in Las Vegas. They thought the Flamingo could be a great success, but it would be even more successful without him. Mm-hmm. Causing trouble, so they killed him. They had him had him killed. Um, one little piece of evidence that suggests this is that reportedly, 20 minutes after Siegel was murdered in Beverly Hills, Gus Greenbaum and Mo Sedway, two of the guys who were partners in the Flamingo with Bugsy and with Billy Wilkerson originally, walk into the casino. They say, "Ben Siegel is dead. We're in charge." <laughs> 20 minutes after the murder. Right. Now, there's no cell phones then. There's no texting. There's no Instagram to let people know what's going on. You got to be a phone call, and somebody had to know to call somebody that knew that this had happened right away. Yeah. It suggests that there was some orchestration to his murder uh, and that the mob was involved. There could be other reasons, but that seems to be why. Wow. Well, it turns out the Flamingo, under the direction of Gus Greenbaum and Mo, De- uh, Mo Sedway, is extraordinarily successful. Very iconic resort, um, did very well. Um, and it's that title, that hotel title is still on the strip today. Although Bugsy's original building is no longer there. Oh, They've okay. completely replaced it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so that's how the 1940s uh, developed. Uh, now you have the Flamingo opening and it's successful. And then you have one more uh, that opens in in the 40s and then in the 50s, you have this massive construction of casinos on the Las Vegas Strip. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're going great gangbusters in the 50s with gambling. And it starts looking a lot more like the place you see today. Right, you have the opening right. Sands Hotel. You have the opening of the Sahara. You have the opening of the Hacienda and the Riviera. Uh, and then you have the Tropicana, the Dunes, uh, the Stardust. All of these casinos start opening on the Strip, and it starts being called the Strip, and it, um, you know, it has this. It, it really becomes a a resort, a much larger resort for people to come from really all over the world to to see. It's a great wonder, like all this neon, all this gambling, all these entertainers. It's amazing. Yeah. You know, see Liberace one night. And then you can see Frank Sinatra the next night. You know, there's like really big names uh, on the marquees here. Wow. So, yeah, it really just started to, to snowball and perpetuate and just get into what, what it is today. Yeah. Um, so one quick question about, uh, I guess, the, the theories on why they would uh, want Bugsy out of the Flamingo. Because you said at that point it had started to do well, like it wasn't. You know, it was, it was just improving. kind of initially improving and stuff. Did they just think that, you know, without him entirely and without his, like, crazy spending, it would just be managed better and would do even better? Number one, yes. Um, you know, 
before he took out, he really took control of the Flamingo, you know, Siegel had zero experience running a casino or a hotel. He knew nothing about it, nothing. Um, and, and when he did take over, he was extremely arrogant. He was defiant of his, of his colleagues, you know, his mob colleagues. Uh, he could be, he was very abusive toward his girlfriend, Virginia Hill, physically abusive. Mm-hmm. Um, people didn't like any of those things about him. And, um, even though, you know, a guy like Meyer Lansky went back with him as far as when they were teenagers, uh, on the streets of New York, yeah. um, uh, you know, there's only so much you can take. So that's, that's the, the leading theory, but it's not the only theory because, Another leading theory is the, that his abusiveness toward Virginia Hill prompted someone who was concerned about her to, to order a hit on, on Siegel. So it was strictly about Virginia Hill. A third theory is that in addition to uh, Siegel annoying his, his uh, partners, he was also skimming. Uh, he was skimming money, and that's why Virginia Hill was going to Europe, because she was taking all the skimmed cash and hiding it. Right. Um, I don't think that's true. I don't think there was any money to skim. You know, they exactly <laughs> hugely successful at that time. Okay. A, a fourth theory is that um, that Siegel, his rackets, his criminal rackets in uh, both in Las Vegas, besides the Flamingo, other other stuff that he was doing besides the Flamingo, um, uh, was uh, he was making enemies, and one of those things was the race wire. At that time, uh, there was this whole phone network set up by the mob to get the horse racing scores and other sports scores into, uh, you know, you didn't have the Internet with this instantaneous uh, knowledge, right? So you had to call on the phone and say, this horse won this race, et cetera. And it was all part of their bookmaking operations. And he, he ran that in Los Angeles and Las Vegas and elsewhere. And he made some enemies doing that because it was very competitive. Mm-hmm. And he may have been killed by his rivals in that area. So there's different theories. Right. Wow. Interesting. Very, very interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, did the, what was the name of the, the guy who had started the Flamingo again? The, his name was Billy Wilkerson. Billy Wilkerson. Had he, did he ever come back uh, in, into it? He never came back to the Flamingo. Um, he was out of the Flamingo. He did try another, he did take a, make a short effort to come back to Las Vegas. In about 1950, he opened a little a little place in Las Vegas, but it, it didn't last very long. And uh, by the 50s, Billy Wilkerson's health was really bad, mm-hmm. and he pulled back from his, his different investments. Okay. Uh, but he ended up dying in 1962. And uh, uh, his, his son, uh, William Wilkerson, has written a very nice bio about his, his father and uh, just came out last year. And he talks about that and how, you know, the Flamingo could have been his baby. It could have been an amazing thing for Wilkerson. Uh, it wasn't. And then this this latter foray into Las Vegas was pretty half-hearted. So it didn't mm-hmm. really work out. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's – it's nice to know the uh, the original stories like that where, you know, because that's the, – the story I had always heard was that Bugsy was the one who kind of started everything, which, you know, right. I think is what spread. But, yeah. Nice there's even a story. There's even a story you will hear frequently that Bugsy Siegel named the flamingo after his girlfriend Virginia Hill, as a, as if he nicknamed her a flamingo because she had very long legs, like oh. a flamingo. It's total nonsense. There's right. no truth. 
that it was named the Flamingo before before Bugsy even had ever heard of the project. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, it makes you almost feel bad for for Billy to, you know, to kind of lose this project, but you know, he really did it to himself with this gambling issues. That's so. the thing. Yeah. It's a real mixed mixed story. <laughs> yeah. Well, good. Well, I'm glad the the real story's out and his his son wrote that book too, so very cool. And that I love how that's in the fifties, these, you know, casinos are starting to be built that are the same ones that are there today. And this, you know, all these names are, you know, are names that we've all heard. It's very cool. And so, of course, so many of those have been torn down now. Yes. Um, or they've had their names changed. So for example, the Sahara, uh, is still here, still on the strip, uh, the Sahara hotel, but now it's called the SLS. So oh. another company came in and now the Sahara is called the SLS. There's a rumor, by the way, that um, they may change it back <laughs> to the Sahara. So we'll see. Yeah. Um, but another example is the Sands Hotel, which also opened in 1952. It was torn down. Famously, uh, the image of its implosion is in the movie Mars Attacks. Oh. Uh, ever seen Mars Attacks? The mm-hmm. Sands comes tumbling down. I think, or is that the landmark? I I don't want to be. I want to overstate that. I, it might be the landmark that's torn down in Mars Attacks. I might pull that back. But, but the sands was imploded, and now that is uh, the site of the Venetian and the Palazzo hotels on the Strip. Uh, the uh, Riviera was torn down recently. Uh, that's going to become uh, part of the Las Vegas Convention Center. Um, the uh, the Dunes was torn down. That became the Mirage Hotel. Uh, yeah, uh, the Silver Slipper and the uh, and the Castaways became the or the Silver Slipper became uh, part of the Mirage as well. Uh, castaways became part. Well, the start. I'm jumping around, but I mean, you can just give me an idea. It's very complicated. Where what is underneath each current casino is kind of a fascinating kind of a story. Yeah. Um, because you have this, you'd have an implosion. Uh, and then you'd have the new one rise up. And implosions became a tourist attraction in themselves in the 90s when people <laughs> would come. They would hear, okay, the implosion's on April 25th. We all got to go out to Vegas and see the implosion, you know, And because these are these pretty fascinating, you know, exciting things that happen, and this building just suddenly crumbles to the ground. Yeah. And uh, a lot of them were, were recorded, and they were on the news, and, uh, you know, and people made a big deal out of it. Yeah, but some of the names are still standing. The Tropicana still stands on the strip, still there. Some of the original building from 1957 is still there. Uh, as I mentioned, the Flamingo is still there, although the original building is not. Mm-hmm. Um, Sahara is still there. Now it's been renamed the SLS. Mm-hmm. But uh, many of others have been torn down. Yeah. That's cool that they, a few of them are still there where you can still kind of see the original architecture and, mm-hmm. and the actual building. That's, that's pretty cool that you can visit yeah. that stuff. Mm-hmm. So it, was that just kind of the, you know, after the 50s, was that just kind of the the way of Vegas? Was it just kept growing and building and then eventually demolishing and, and building bigger stuff? Pretty much. The, the 60s were a time uh, where there was kind of a, uh, a recalibration. Uh, there were not a lot of new casinos that opened in the 60s, with the exception of two big ones, three big ones over the entire decade. Uh, you had the opening of the Caesars Palace, which is a big one. Yeah. And it really, the, the Caesars, Caesars Palace opened the door for the themed resort, the idea that the, 
that everything in the everything in the place has to have a theme. I follow the theme. Mm-hmm. Caesar's Palace had this sort of Roman theme, right? Ancient Rome. So everything at Caesar's was tied to that. Yeah. And then in that uh, the year after, you had the opening of the uh, Aladdin Hotel, and the Aladdin had an Aladdin, you know, that kind of a theme. Right. And um, and then you had in '68 the opening of Circus Circus. Mm. And Circus Circus had this, you know, circus clown theme, kind of crazy uh, theme. And so you saw this whole theming uh, process continue well into the 90s. Uh, we've kind of been getting away from it lately. But, yeah. uh, you know, those themed resorts, I mean, many of them still stand. Caesar's Palace and Circus Circus among them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have noticed that that it, it seems as though the newer things are not all centered around a yeah. the theme again. They're trying to get a little classier, a little less cheesy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So, um, so what has happened to, because Fremont Street started, when did Fremont Street kind of, they, it went through kind of a decline, didn't it? Yeah. So Fremont Street started feeling, feeling the pressure in the seventies mm-hmm. and especially in the eighties where, you know, it was seeing that its revenue was declining while the strip was going up. And so Fremont Street Casinos and the city of Las Vegas kind of recognized this problem in the late mid to late 80s, mm-hmm. and they decided they have to do something about it. And the solution uh, ultimately was, uh, if, you've been, if you haven't been to, down, been to Fremont Street, or if you have, you, know, you probably know that there's a big canopy over Fremont Street from Main Street to uh, 4th Street, and it's called the Fremont Street Experience, and it's a pedestrian space now. Right. All it used to be. When I was young. I'm old enough to have driven as a teenager, driven my car uh, on Fremont Street and parked in front of a hotel. Uh-huh. Uh, but you can't do that today. It's all pedestrian promenade there now. Yeah. And there's this overhead canopy that has thousands and thousands and thousands of lights. And at night, every hour on the hour or whatever. There is a huge broadcast on this on these lights of some kind of a, what I would call like a music video, basically a long music video, you know, and, um, uh, and you see everything from planes flying really fast from one end of the canopy to the other. You'll see rock bands singing. You'll see, uh, you know, different faces popping up, different kinds of graphic schemes. I, I've never been a big fan, but uh, a lot of people love it. And uh, it's, it's definitely a spectacle. Mm-hmm. And so, it, in fact, the Fremont Street experience and the canopy did uh, reignite lo- downtown Las Vegas. It really did help Fremont Street. And the casinos all started working together on that and on other things to the point where they started making Fremont Street a little more cohesive, a little bit more teamwork-oriented, to build their customer base, and they've been quite successful. Now, the numbers are, you know, the strips numbers dwarfed downtowns. Mm-hmm. That's always going to be the case, but downtown is is definitely got its niche now. It's more affordable. It definitely attracts certain demographic groups. Uh, there are casinos downtown that that target Hawaiians specifically. The Hawaiian uh, community loves to come to downtown Las Vegas. And there's a couple of the places, the California hotel, uh, the main street station hotel, and a couple others, they cater to Hawaiians to the extent that 
the menus and the restaurants are have Hawaiian dishes, and the Hawaii, the music, you know, the performers in the showrooms are are Hawaiian performers, and so forth. So that's an example of where uh, downtown is kind of cornered the market. Nice. That's good that they found their their niche and and have been able to to hone in on that and capitalize on that. So that's good to hear. So when was that uh, the Fremont Street experience constructed? That opened in, I believe, 1995. Oh, wow. So it's been around a while. And it's take, it's gone through some some, re, some incarnations. They've gotten better light bulbs and, you know, <laughs> switched to LED. And, you know, there's actually another um, another iteration of the of the canopy coming soon. Oh. Uh, the, the, the casinos recently agreed to invest, I forget, several million dollars in another renovation. So they're constantly looking for ways to, uh, to reinvigorate uh, Fremont Street. One of the things they do is uh, probably nine months a year, uh, live live music is is uh, very prevalent at night on Fremont Street, mm-hmm. and you know every dinosaur rock band known to man plays down there, <laughs> um, and uh, you know sometimes it's quite fun, uh, but at, uh, sometimes it's a little much. But uh, you know they're just a couple of blocks away from from the Mob Museum, so we. You know, seven or eight o'clock at night on a Friday night, that music is booming, mm-hmm. and uh, people are crowding in there by the thousands. So, Fremont Street does pretty well. Nice, yeah. It's definitely it, it is very different than being on the Strip, where you can easily walk between the different hotels and everything, and it's all just it's all kind of there. It's not as uh, engrossing, I guess, as huge resorts. But yeah, yeah, cool. So, what do you think is kind of the the future of Vegas, what's going to, what's happening, what's on the horizon, what do you think is going to happen? Well, uh, so I think it's interesting to look at it a little bit more um, uh, globally, if you will, not just the casinos, but looking at Las Vegas as a, a place that attracts tourists for a lot of reasons. Um, one of the things we've seen over the past 10 years in Las Vegas is that tourists are not spending as much of their money on gambling anymore. They're coming here for the restaurants, and we have a lot of, lot of celebrity chefs here with their, their, you know, their premier restaurants here. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a lot of shopping, tons of shopping opportunities here now. Um, so uh, people come here to shop. Uh, we have, you know, still amazing entertainment, entertainment venues. You know, we have um, Cirque du Soleil, which has about eight shows up and down the strip yeah. that you can take in. Um, all comedians and magicians and you know everybody's here so people are spending a lot of money on those things they're going to day spas you know uh they're uh engaging in all kinds of different activities and gambling is just a piece of the puzzle now mm-hmm. so we're looking at that trend and making sure that we that people keep spending money even if they're not spending it all on gambling the second thing uh it, it we're seeing is that las vegas is really focusing on special events. So country music awards, um, uh, some kind of a music festival, um, some kind of a convention uh, that attracts, you know, huge numbers of people like CES mm-hmm. uh, or um, those kinds of things. Um, uh, Las Vegas uh, race, we have auto racing, right? So we have NASCAR, we have two NASCAR races per year here. Uh, that draws a lot of people. We have the national finals rodeo here every year attracts tens of thousands of people. Um, we have the music awards I mentioned. We have uh, 
beauty pageants. We have, you know, it's just, you, you name it, Las Vegas is looking for a reason for it to come here. The third thing is professional sports. And yes. you've no doubt heard that we have a hockey team now, yes. a professional NHL hockey team called the Vegas Golden Knights. And last year, in their first season, uh, they play right on the Strip. They play in the T-Mobile Arena, which is right on the Las Vegas Strip, right next, it's wedged between two casinos. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and the Golden Knights play there. They played their first season last year. They ended up going to the NHL Finals, the final they lost, but they went all the way to the finals in their first year. Very strange. But people locally and tourists love going to these games. They've sold out every game they've ever played. Whoa. Oh, so, yeah. So Vegas has embraced hockey, uh, and um, that has drawn a lot of activity here. Now, guess who's coming next? Uh, pro football. Yeah. So you have the Oakland Raiders moving here in 2020. From Oakland, we have we're building an arena for that, or an arena, a stadium for them, right on the strip. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, it's not true. It's it's one block off the strip. Yeah. Uh, we're building a giant stadium for professional football. So one of the things that happens when you build this arena for the Vegas Golden Knights, when they're not playing, you put concerts in there. Uh, we've had huge huge concert event, uh, concert schedule in the T-Mobile Arena, uh, eighteen thousand seats. Um, and then you're now you're going to have a football uh, stadium where you could have epic music festivals or like, you know, the biggest, biggest bands in the world performing uh, uh, right there in the stadium. Or you could have more mundane things, whatever you want to do. You have all this space. You could, you know, the latest talk is that the Super Bowl, uh, we're going to be uh, probably have the Super Bowl here in 2025. <laughs> now, that's a few years off, but the Super Bowl. In Las Vegas in 2025. Get ready for it. Um, so these are the things that Las Vegas is looking at now. It's it's not just about gambling anymore. It's about all these other uh, attractions that we can create. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean you guys are able to kind of make a, a good pitch to like a huge convention or, so, or conference or something or sporting event because you have the hotels and infrastructure to support yeah. a whole bunch of people like that. We have the facilities to do just about just about anything. Yeah, very very yeah. cool. Wow, awesome. Well, this was a, yeah. this was great. I love. I was I had heard bits and parts of that story, but I had never heard the whole Vegas, you know, origin story like that. So that was really really fascinating to hear that. So I really appreciate you sharing that. Oh, it was, it was fun to talk to you. I uh, enjoyed it. Cool. Um, so, I guess where can people find you or find your book or or get more info on all this stuff? Sure. So, so uh, the first thing I'd like to, to mention is the Mob Museum, where I work. Uh, the museum has a great deal. A lot of this history I talked about today is in the museum, you know, and it's, uh, it's really a good place to learn about Las Vegas history and, and organized crime history in general. Um, as far as my Sunset and Suburbia book, it's available on Amazon. Um, it's available in the Mob Museum bookstore, nice. uh, and it's uh, generally pretty easy to find. Cool. Um, I uh, um, am now working on a revised edition of my Howard, my biography of Howard Hughes, and uh, we didn't even talk about him. Maybe we can do that another time. But yeah. Howard Hughes has uh, had a big influence on Las Vegas, and uh, so I've I've had a book on that published in 2008, currently out of print, but it's coming back. Uh, I've done a revised edition, and that'll be coming out, and probably within a year. Oh, cool! Yeah, be, yeah. We let's do an episode on that. That'd be fun because okay. every time I 
take my dog for a walk every morning here in Long Beach and we see the big, you know, dome you where the spruce yeah. was. Yeah, exactly. Cool. That'd yep. be fun. Awesome. And then, okay, I had one more, one last question I wanted to ask you. Um, do you know where the, uh, the name Las Vegas came from? Yeah. Uh, Las Vegas is Spanish uh, for the meadows. Oh, and the okay. reason uh, this was known as the meadows um, is pretty basic. It, the desert, this is the Mojave Desert. It's the driest desert in North America, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but at that time, in the 1850s, when Las Vegas got its name, this was a very lush kind of a, of a place. We had all these springs bubbling up all over the Las Vegas Valley, and we had all this greenery everywhere, natural. And so it was a place where it was a destination for Indians and other traders, fur trappers, everybody like that, because there was water here, and you could you, you could water your horses. You can there was there were these pools here, springs would bubble up, and it created these pools, what was known as the Las Vegas Spring, and. Um, the people would come from, you know, hundreds of miles of dry desert and they'd suddenly show up in Vegas and they'd be refreshed. So mm-hmm. the meadows, that's where that come from. Okay. Makes sense. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Man, yeah, it's crazy the the amount of knowledge that you have. You have really studied this stuff and you just have it right there. It's it's really out of my life. <laughs> Living in the past. Yes. Yeah. Well, thank you. I appreciate you you sharing. Um, thanks for being on, Jeff. Have a good uh, rest of the day. Appreciate it. Very good. Thanks for having me. Hey guys, Travis is here again. Um, So the podcast is over, it's done, so you can just leave right now, so don't worry about it. But I just had a couple things I wanted to mention and say to you guys. So first of all, thanks for listening to the episode or watching the episode, super appreciate that. Um, If you want to connect with me or in in the podcast, uh, we're on, we have a website, it's called curiositynist.com. Um, curiosityness is C U R I O S I T Y N E S S. Kind of weird. Um, but that's what it is. Curiosityness.com. Uh, you can go there. We have an Instagram, Instagram.com slash curiosityness podcast. So not just curiosityness for the username. Uh, I'm on Instagram as Trav DeRose, T-R-A-V-D-E-R-O-S-E, if you want to find just me. Um, oh, we're on Facebook, facebook.com slash curiosityness. We're on YouTube. Uh, I think just go to YouTube and search curiosityness and we'll pop up. Uh, I don't think we have a URL for that one, sorry. Oh, and we have a, I have an email address, travis at curiositynest.com. So if you want to email me, you know, give me your thoughts on the show, suggestions, tips, uh, maybe like a suggestion for a new, for a guest who could come on, maybe yourself or somebody that you know who might be interested or, or you would like to hear on the podcast, let me know about that stuff. I, I would love to hear that. Um, Oh, and then if you could leave a review, too, for the podcast, that would be super appreciated. Uh, the reviews in, like, in Apple Podcasts or Spotify or whatever, wherever you're listening to this, super help. Um, just drop, like, a star, whatever star review. I won't tell you to do five, but it'd be nice. Uh, so drop a review. You can write a review even, too, if you want. That would be even better. Um, but that's about it. So thanks again for watching. I super appreciate you, you know, listening to the whole show and staying here. Um, And yeah, thanks again. Have a good day. Bye-bye.